what are we going to talk about at this particular moment in time is what we do after a cocoa are enthused about it. Wonderful, you know, meditation, marvelous, summer is fantastic. I'll never miss another day in my life when I won't meditate. And it's quite sincere. But it doesn't work. The uh, and not, never missing another day in my life is too long. It's sort of like an, a determination which demands too much. It's much more sensible to say to oneself, mm-hmm, "I'm meditating there, so I meditate this evening, and I'll also meditate." tomorrow morning, and then tomorrow morning, again another determination, I'll do it this evening, and so on, from one to the next. The mind can easily handle that. I will now do that. But to handle the, an idea that I'm going to do this for the next 30 or 40 years, I mean, it's a bit daunting, isn't it? And people don't do it. Now, we do that, and that's fine. We sit on our little pillow and we meditate. And if we haven't got a little corner yet where this pillow is at home, we'll make a little corner for that pillow. And we'll even maybe uh, finish it with uh, maybe a Buddha statue or we'll finish it with a nice picture or something. And we'll leave the pillow lying there. We don't pick up our dining room chairs every day and put them back when we need them, and we don't pick up our towels out of the bathroom every day and put them back when we need them, and by the same token, we leave the meditation pillow where we're going to use it. Because it also, when we go past it, it reminds us what it's there for. One of the very important things to have is a timer that rings the time is up. Because now here you've been sitting until the little bell went and uh, even if the meditation in your opinion wasn't very good, you still remained there. That's the same at You sit there and you think, oh, meditation is no good today, I think I better skip it. That's also not useful. Have the timer ring at the appointed time and stick it. Perseverance and patience. Two P's which are essential. Without those two, it doesn't work. And perseverance and patience also entail or have embedded in them that one does that which appears to be difficult and does it with one's best ability whether it's going to come out perfect or not, what does it matter? There are two P's to shun. One is perfectionism and the other one is procrastination. Those two P's have to be shunned. They're not uncommon. Perfectionism is a um, result of the um, me illusion. As long as I'm here, I've got to be perfect. It's a myth. It's an idea. It's got nothing really 
that uh, I've been And procrastination is the result of our third hindrance of loss and torpor. And if we do that with the Dhamma and the meditation, we're going to come back again and again and again. We might as well do it now. But with everything. Now, doing things immediately is something one should train oneself. Because if you let it, don't do things that you are necessary to do, whatever they may be, a cleaning a floor or bringing somebody up or writing a letter or whatever it may be. If you don't train oneself, one doesn't train oneself. In those aspects, why should one be different when one is connected to the Dhamma? These are inherent difficulties and they are inherent in everything. So do things now. <coughs> and there's many advantages. That's what we'll save a lot of time not thinking about it. But doing it. We save a lot of time not having a build up of stuff. Will we then not um, a seldom feel that there's too much that uh, we are responsible for? If you do little by little, it's nothing to be responsible for. You just do the one thing that's happening. And we stay in the here and now. So patience and perseverance are to be cultivated and perfectionism and procrastination are to be eliminated. Easy? Please say. Not so easy to do. One can simplify the teaching, one can simplify it and explain it, but that doesn't mean it's easy. Yes, it's a simple thing to understand, but it's not easy. All our inner <coughs> instincts and impulses are always going the other way until we've turned them around enough. So we need a little pillow and we need a timer. And we need to put them there where we're going to use them. We need to stay there until the timer rings. For beginners who have not meditated before, one should start with 30 minutes and add 5 minutes every 2 weeks until one comes to an hour. For those who've meditated and can meditate, an hour is the appropriate time. If you meditate 1 hour in the morning and 1 hour at night, you will be able to keep any kind of advance you've made in the course. And that's it. You'll stay even. One hour in the morning and one hour at night do not ordinarily add to one's calm and inside proficiency. Would be very rare. These are generalizations that are not always, not always true, but uh, one has to speak in generalizations because one can't take each case separately. If you don't meditate one hour in the morning, one hour at night, you're going to lose what you've gained, particularly in calm meditation. And everybody who's been through that knows that. We lose it because we think either other things are more important, or because the world has taken such a slice of our daily life 
you have nothing left to give to this. So this is a minimal requirement if there is calm in the meditation to keep it going. Now with insight, of course, we have other opportunities. We don't have to sit down at a table. We can go and catch a bus and gain insight from that. We also, uh, the Buddha talks about mindfulness of interior and exterior situation. So we can gain insight from watching our surroundings, people and situations. But beware, that doesn't mean that one judges or criticizes or that one has any negativity uh, towards other people because one sees somebody's not mindful, stumbles, falls or whatever. You just see it. Take notice of it. And if it is actually something that is unfortunate, that's happening. Compassion. Mindfulness of external matters does not entail judgment and criticism. It's just knowing what's going on. The more we know ourselves, the easier it is to know everybody else. In fact, it becomes so easy that dialogue and discussion quite often misses the point totally. Because most people I'm not honest. I don't mean to say that they're liars. That's not what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to say that most people, including us, are not honest enough to say what they're actually feeling. For two reasons. One is, they don't know what they're feeling. I mean, practice enough mindfulness. And the second reason is, they don't really want to admit. And since that is what is happening, in most dialogue, we don't have very good communication, very poor communication among people. If we talk about that, what we feel, and are totally honest about it, maybe it isn't uh, something that is uh, admirable. So what? If we are still looking for admiration, it's quite a useful and useless enterprise. It needs to be a lot, or just people. So if we can talk from that um, level, we have heart-to-heart communication. If we don't, if we don't have the honesty, the ability to be totally honest, and the ability to know what we're feeling and then voice that, we have mind-to-mind communication. Usually quite boring and also only boring, but it's um, tedious. Well, if one is young, maybe not. But when one is old like myself, you've heard it all before. So, mind-to-mind conversation is not interesting. But how to heart is. And one should always try. So if the other person isn't able, it doesn't matter. Most people are. But they need the nudge. Somebody's got a nudge to be really honest. It's a wonderful feeling to be able to be really honest. 
<coughs> you know, honesty, and Pali is usually translated as truth, kacha, and truth is one of the ten virtues, but it's also the, um, uh, the four noble truths. So truth takes a very important uh, place in the Buddha's teaching, and it's not exactly the opposite of lying, because it is actually natural. But there's more to it, as I've just explained. More to it than just not lying. As being really there, knowing what's going on in this one Simple, but not easy. So what are our greatest helpmates? Our greatest helpmates are the four foundations of mindfulness, which we have discussed at great length and great detail, and which you can re-hear on the tapes. And the thing is that one cannot possibly remember everything that would be said. It's not possible, nobody's got a memory like that. You have, have to have a photographic memory where you can read a book and have that as a photograph within your mind. Very few people have that. If they do, it's very lovely, but very few people have that. And you can also not remember everything that's being said. So if you either use a book or a tape, make notes in Telegram Star. What this is all about and make your own notes. Because that, what you're noting down, is that what appears important to you. And that to which you have a personal connection. We cannot just use somebody's notes. It's like as if you were to write a PhD thesis using somebody's notes. The end results are messed. We don't know what it's all about. We don't even know what the main aspect of it is. So, when you hear a tape, when you read a book, when you hear a tape, maybe you have to hear ten minutes. Make some telegram star notes. Another ten minutes, another ten minutes. And it's done with. You read a book, never read more than a chapter. I'm talking about the Buddhist teaching books. I'm not talking about uh, adventure stories. Um, one chapter, at the very most, even two pages, it might sometimes be enough. And then make your notes in a telegram style of what you think was important in that bit that you heard or read and that you want to remember and practice. And then you remember that by looking at those telegram star notes and then you practice it. And then the mind says, okay, I've got that. I won't forget. Next one. Next one. Again. And another one. And another one. And you will find I'm sure that everybody will find it. I think it's a generalization that we can be quite safe with. That every time you hear that same tape or read the same book and have actually practiced that which you felt was important, 
that the next time you hear Ori, there's something else that has been added to it, which you didn't pay attention to the first time. And that's quite all right. It's exactly the way it should be. Because we do not see the depth of the whole thing immediately. It comes through practicing. So I'd like to um, recommend this a way of dealing with the knowledge of Dhamma so that it becomes the interior vision of Dhamma. The knowledge of Dhamma is knowing what it's all about. And then it becomes the interior vision. And as we use it, um, as we use the um, guidelines, I'm just talking about now tapes and books that are available, we use them, we remember them better, much, much better, when we have written down ourselves in telegram style. If we can't remember, some people have very poor memories, learn that telegram style writing down. Anybody can do that, eventually. Or just enough so that you can practice it. If you can't remember it, you can't practice it. And if you use somebody, somebody's book, somebody's tape, you will always see that although it has the guidelines in it, you need your personal connection to it. And that's what you do when you write your own notes. I used to do that for years and years with the little booklet of the BPS, the translations of the sutras, and uh, Naraponika's um, commentary to that, which was fine and clear and wonderful, but it wasn't mine. I couldn't make his understanding mine. I had to understand it from the ground up. And so I made my own notes. Sure, I checked to see whether it was in line with what the Sutta said. But I made my own notes, and then I could use it from the ground up. So we have also the difficulty of language. Even though you may be only having one language, English, um, and it may be your mother tongue, it depends very much on the family we've been brought up in, the kind of schooling we had, what value system we have for words. Words have different value systems. So use your own. Always make sure you use your own. It's also something which has another uh, validity, and that is Nobody is preparing the way. The only thing that the Buddha said, I am sure of the way. But he can't make the way. You're preparing your own way. And it's far more interesting and uh, far more inspiring. As if somebody was telling you now that's the way it goes. So use them as guidelines and make your own uh, telegram style of And if you read, let's say, a whole chapter or hear a whole tape and you can't find anything in there that you want to practice, all right, here's the next one. And then a few months later, here's the first one again. 
doesn't matter. You can't practice it all at once anyway. Mindfulness is our um, greatest strength and helper. And yet you will find that you're not practicing all of mindfulness all at once. You may be practicing the content of thought, and that is absolutely essential, of course, the substitution. You may be practicing the um, uh, recognition of your emotions, the substitution, and hopefully you won't forget to practice mindfulness of the body. Because you see, this mindfulness of the body is possible to do when there isn't any thinking or emoting. When there's a lot of emotion or a lot of thinking, you can't do it. <coughs> so it is one of the ways of getting an acquired and peaceful mind outside of meditation. <coughs> Mindfulness of body movement, involuntarily or voluntarily. A great help. Clear comprehension is a great help. And it should actually be become a natural way of checking up on oneself. If one doesn't check up on oneself, well, who's going to do it? The only person or persons that will do it eventually are those that we may have um, wittingly or unwittingly hurt in some way or other. They'll check up on us, but not in a very nice way. They'll be uh, against us in some way. So it's much more um, useful and helpful to check up on ourselves. Again, recognition, no blame, change. There's no blame attached. It's just recognizing with mindfulness, awareness. Using your time for uh, two meditation hours and watching yourself with mindfulness will make it possible to practice more of loving kindness and compassion. And if you don't feel any, think it. Got to do something. You might as well think it. Because where we think our feelings will go, so instead of thinking and feeling anger and rejection, worry and anxiety, restlessness and uh, dejection, think loving kindness and compassion, even if you can't feel it. And mainly think it as often as you can. Not just when you sit on a pillow, not just when somebody reminds you to do it, not just when things go haywire, always, again and again. And one notices, notices it particularly that one needs to do it when the feeling inside is not peaceful and happy. And then one notices. Before that, one may just sort of meander along thinking, you know, but it's fine. 
But as one notices that, then one knows it's not fine. I haven't remembered. What is loving kindness? Loving kindness is impersonal, unconditional love. It's got nothing to do with the person that's in front of us. It's got nothing to do with any condition that has arisen which makes that person lovable. It is strictly the practice of purification of the heart without imagination. Now in the beginning of the practice, sometimes it does help to have this imagination. Isn't that person wonderful? I mean, it's imagination. It may help, but it's a short-lived help. So if we've got any sense at all, we will see quite clearly within a very short time that person is not all wonderful. They're struggling as much as we are. And they'd love to have inner peace and inner joy. And therefore, compassion is a natural result of understanding that. I'd like to warn against the uh, imagination of wonderful. It doesn't bring insight, it brings an intellectual way of not seeing the truth. Not helpful at all. Well, by the same token, of course, the opposite is not helpful either. Thinking everybody off. They're just extreme. And they have no bearing, no basis in that, nowhere. A discriminating mind, honed and trained in meditation, knows differences, but doesn't eat them. Unless we know differences, how are we ever going to stay? on the straight and narrow. No way we can do it. We don't know what it is. So you need a honed and trained mind which gets through meditation, gets through mindfulness, without the judgment, the criticism. Just know it, realize it, and then practicing as much of the supreme emotions as possible. With equanimity, we have a different story. We can actually try to practice that when it isn't at all part of our field. Having recognized the fact that we are not equanimous, we recognize the fact that we are everything else but. We're worried, we're anxious, we're restless, we're um, trying to get or trying to get rid of. No way that we could by any means say that we are economists. At that time, it's a very good practice to see why are we the way we are? Can we drop the cause? And can we get back to a feeling of ease? It's all mindfulness. All of it is being aware of what goes on inside. If 
we rather use mindfulness, if we are interest, if we use that as an interest, we can never be bored. And we can also not be uninspired. Because it's very interesting what goes on with people, even with ourselves, but then all the people around one. But the minute you become negative about it, what other people do, it's no longer inspired. On the contrary, depressing. So it's very, very important to realize that mindfulness is non-judgmental. And as it remains non-judgmental, it's also inspiring. Because we can see what a human being is made up of, out of. We see the whole thing. But when we become judgmental, then it's depressing. Very depressing. Because there's at least as much negative as there is positive. So we have our meditation practice. We have reading books and listening to tapes in a certain way so that you have a personal understanding of it, a personal relationship to what you hear and read. Well, maybe not even understanding, but a relationship to it. We have the mindfulness and the clear comprehension. We should never forget that. And we have the supreme emotion. All of it gets lost in the shuffle. Well, yes, but the shuffle is something that's all. But you don't lose it. One has to make up one's mind. What are my priorities? That's a very important thing. I think I've mentioned it before, to write down in one's diary. What are actually my priorities? What's the most important thing? And then, having written it down, what is the most important thing, or in plural, how do I imagine to go about it so that these most important things will actually become a reality? Then have a look and see what is really most important. And have you actually grasped it in that little note that you made? Is it really there that that most important? Or is it just an idea that you've got? Is it really that what you want? I have to keep on asking this one. The other thing which is very important and which the Buddha mentioned over and over again are noble friends. In Pali, Kayana Mitta. Sanskrit Mitra, but in Pali, Mitta. The name Sangamitta, daughter of King Asoka, who brought uh, the nuns over to Sri Lanka means friend of the Sangha, Mita is friend. Haryana Mita, the um, helpful friend, the noble friend. The Buddha said to Ananda that a noble friend is the whole of the holy path, or the whole of the spiritual We consider the um, meditation teacher as a noble friend because a meditation teacher would, one would hope, 
talk about noble topics and bring elevation to the mind, which is the meaning of a noble friend. A noble friend is someone who can actually um, touch one's heart and mind so that the um, inner feeling becomes one of more contentment, feeling more elevated towards an ideal. So you can see that not only the noble friend but also the noble conversation is an enormously important aspect. There are 18 subjects mentioned by the Buddha which are ignoble, which one should not talk about. Most of them are constantly mentioned on television. In fact, all of them. Because the, uh, the main aspect of those 18 are sex, politics, and food. And they're not enlightening or elevating. Let me use those words. For politics he used not talking about armies and robbers and kings and ministers. And uh, for food he used different foodstuffs. And sex for the men not to talk, uh, for the monks not to talk about women and the nuns not to talk about um, men. And there are other derivatives. Uh, but these are the main topics. So what does that uh, infer? That watching television is not a very good idea. In fact, it's a dreadful idea. In fact, I have made it my business, seeing I'm in a house that is a television, to watch several of the comics that my five-year-old granddaughter watches. The colors are nice, the animated animals are nice, the content of the story is dreadful, absolutely dreadful. I don't know why they want to show that to children. It's uh, partially bloodthirsty, it's um, very, um, very unpleasant. At five, the discrimination isn't there. But at your ages, you should be able to discriminate what is good nourishment for the mind and what isn't. I would say that the whole of the television is not good nourishment for the mind, including all those spectral commercials. If they do show something which is worth seeing, um, one can of course pick that one particular thing, but as a whole, it's not noble conversation. Even though oneself isn't saying anything, somebody is talking to me, at me. Noble conversation is the food for the mind. Nobody eats poisonous or dirty food. 
willfully contaminates his or her body. 99.8% of all mankind quite willing to contaminate their mind. It's a kind of input which is not happening. Noble conversation is the food and we should be at least as discriminating about the mental food as we are about the I think the television is worse than the newspapers, but they are bad enough as it is. And the uh, argument, I've got to know what's going on in the world, is meaningless. If something really important happens, everybody gets told at once. And always finds out. And all the stuff that's in the newspapers and on the television is really not basically of any importance. It just has news value. It's something that's new at the moment. So we should try and remember noble friends and noble conversation. And if we are in a situation where we have to go to work and people stand around the water cooler and talk nonsense, which is not unusual, we have two uh, uh, avenues open to us. One is to change the subject, needs a bit of skill, and if we haven't got that skill, to walk away with our water. We don't have to stand there. The Buddha calls it well gossip. We didn't have to water <laughs> The well into this day is an important uh, meeting place in the source called Tegros Kamis. So we are necessary. So, what, why do we do this? To protect our own mind. Just like you protect your body from eating nothing that's poisonous. Well, you wouldn't willingly eat some poisonous mushrooms, would you? I mean, you might if you didn't know they were poisonous. But if somebody says, look, these are poisonous mushrooms, you wouldn't ever take them. Because you know you'd wind up in hospital. Well, why, why take it into the mind? A mind that guards itself against such things is a mind that can meditate, and a mind that purifies. And only then, with a purified mind, do we come to a different level of consciousness. So we have to guard ourselves against all these things that are going on and find noble friends and noble conversation. Noble friends are found when we have uh, meditation groups. That's why I'm always very much uh, advocating and suggesting that meditation groups are to be formed and continued where one can talk about uh, some Dhamma subject, but at least, even if that isn't the case, at least one can guard against talking about things which are unhealthy for the body. But very important to have those noble friends and uh, a group are two, starts with two. Anything more than two, that's fine. It starts with two. So, if wherever you are, you haven't got a group, and I think Brisbane is the rest, is that right, Janet? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Well, 
without any fear of repercussion but one's own difficulty. This is, by the way, very often one of the drawbacks of monastic life. You may have noticed that that can happen very often, but when I do, I say personal opinion, so that you don't think the Buddha said that. He said, noble friends, noble conversation. But from that I have deduced, and from my own experience also found, that the psychological well-being can only be maintained if you take this part seriously, if you have somebody to talk to about it, in all honesty about the difficulties one encounters, about that what one has seen in oneself, because if one can't talk about it, one doesn't want to know it. And if one doesn't want to know about it, one can't change it. As long as one wants to know about it, and then actually talk about it, it becomes so much easier. And as we have noble friends, they must be the kind of noble friends, and we must be the same, to whom we can, without any fear, tell our secrets, because we know that person will keep the secret. Now, these are words of secrets, keeping the secret. And uh, we will know that that person will try to help and not use those um, um, honest appraisals we say ahead of ourselves against us at some stage. But we have total confidence. We can really trust. That's a noble thing. We can really trust. We have to be able to trust in their um, ability to keep our secrets as we would keep theirs. We have to be able to trust their ability to be helpful if that we would want to be their ability to look after our well-being just as we would look after them. These are the main aspects of a noble friend as they are mentioned by the Buddha and also in the commentary. There are more details but not necessary. These are the main If wherever you live, you haven't got a group, try your little bit to find some people that would join you in a weekly meditation. It doesn't have to be good. Not necessary. Weekly meditation. And if they want to hear some tapes, play them. If they don't, don't play them. It's of course um, an intermediary step, but it's much better than trying to do that alone. If one has that once a week, it's a great help. It's very important to continue to go to meditation courses, where one is also able to ask questions. Once you've got a book or a tape in your hand, you can't ask any more questions. They are all either printed or set already. Your questions will not be answered by the politics. Hopefully, they will be answered by teacher. 
don't make the mistake of comparing teachers. That's judgmental. Just take what you can get and be grateful. Gratitude is a derivative of loving kindness. Those who can be grateful, truly grateful, have a much easier time with loving kindness and have a much easier time with concentration. Gratitude at the beginning of meditation can be a real access to concentration. Be grateful for anything you can get which is interesting, enlightening, elevating, other than what's being talked about as the water cooler. And what should go as often as one can manage. It's a different story from practicing on one's own. Obviously one can't always go, that's natural, one has to make a living, that's quite true. But everybody can organize their time somehow or other. So having uh, been able to do that will be very, very important. The, um, the other thing, which is um, the basics, and I didn't mention that at the time I was talking about the Four Noble Truths, I didn't mention the Fourth Noble Truth, the Noble Eightfold Path which consists of three parts, Sila Samadhi and Panya, Sila Moral Conduct, Samadhi Concentration, Panya Inside Wisdom, and the basic is Sila. Now, if one is um, not Mahaganan, there are five basics, five Silas, and they are given by the Buddha in order to minimize hate and we don't get rid of them, but we get, at least, we can minimize them a bit. Interestingly enough, the um, organization of the Nobel uh, Food Path is not Sila Samadhi and Tanya, but it's Tanya Sila Samadhi which is unusual because usually we talk about the um, moral conductors then as a result the ability to concentrate and as a result to gain insight which is logical but in the noble eightfold path it doesn't go in that logical uh, succession but it starts out with wisdom insight wisdom and the reason it does that is because we need enough wisdom to actually go on a spiritual path. If we don't have even that much wisdom, we keep on watching church and trying to make money or whatever else we are thinking is very important. It's very interesting that um, I've known uh, numbers of people, I can't give a number, I don't know how many, who were like that all their lives they're just interested only in the everyday affair and as they get really old and older and old all of a sudden it dawns on them there must be something else 
And you find it, of course, very difficult because their mind is set in certain ways. And uh, the difficulty is because they have thought for so long in another way that to think in new ways is more difficult than when we are young. That's why the Buddha recommended to start when we are young. He said, he sat under the tree meditating when he was a black-haired youth. In other words, no gray hair yet. And uh, he, I mean, he was 29, he wasn't a, a youngster when he went to the forest. Um, so he recommends that one doesn't wait, that one knows the urgency. Right. Now the right view, which is the beginning of the Noble Eightfold Path, which is you know, wisdom, we better call it wisdom because it is an insight here at that time, it's wisdom. Um, gives us the understanding that something needs to be done. And so we, if we find the Buddha's path, that's what we do. And the second part of the Noble Eightfold Path is then the moral conduct. Now the moral conduct is expressed in the Noble Eightfold Path a little bit differently from the five precepts. But since we're going to take a refuge and precept, I will and talk about the precepts. And uh, basically, the second part of the Noble Eightfold Path contains exactly the same thing. The right speech, right action, right language. But um, in the five, it's a little more explicit again. And what we are asked to do, we are asked to refrain from certain actions and also from certain speech. We are asked to refrain from killing living beings, from taking anything that is not given, from sexual misconduct, from lying and harsh words, and from drugs and alcohol. Now, that injunction to refrain carries within it the injunction to do the opposite. And that's the practice. Only refraining isn't good enough. Not only isn't it good enough, but it may be a superimposed discipline which we follow only because we are told we are supposed to and there is no inner feeling and connection to practicing the opposite. That type of thing, and I have seen that happen, not with five precepts, but with more than five, becomes like a very uncomfortable stretch. And the mind likes to get out of there. So just refraining from that which isn't the um, wholesome thing is not enough. We have to also practice the wholesome. So what is the opposite of not killing living beings and practicing loving kindness and compassion? Mm-hmm. So we've already discussed that and don't need to go any further, although there is 
an immense number of details that one could discuss, but we are somewhat limited in our time. Now, when we talk about not taking what is not given, we're talking about generosity. Not taking what is not given means that we are just as careful about other people's property as we are about our own. Or maybe in some cases we need to be more careful of it, if we're not very careful of our own. But it means practicing generosity. Now, generosity is the first of the ten virtues which the Buddha named and enumerated that need to be practiced by any Bodhisattva. Now, Bodhisattva in our tradition is anyone who is aiming for enlightenment. Buddhist enlightenment, what was being. And uh, generosity stands at the apex. That doesn't mean that the other nine are not important. It just means that generosity opens the door. And it opens the door to real inner virtue because it means that we can, at least momentarily, forget about our self-centeredness and think of somebody else. The more often we do that, the easier it becomes. And the more we see that the self is nothing but a problem. Because when we think about somebody else and not about ourselves, when we want to be generous to somebody else, and not thinking about ourselves, we also realize that we couldn't possibly have a problem at that time. If we're not thinking about this person, how can there be a problem? It's impossible. So we realize the relief and relief that the lack of self-centeredness provides. Generosity is our mundane step in that direction. I've talked about the jhanas, which are, of course, the meditative steps that would show us that there, are, that there is really isn't anybody. But in the world that we live in, generosity is the one that will bring us um, a great um, example of this shifting to self and center position. Generosity means giving. What do we give? Whatever we've got. We can give money, we can give time, we can give knowledge, we can give skills, we can give love, we uh, can give things, material things. Whatever we have, we can give. And the more that we do, the more we get back. Nobody believes it until they've tried it. If you tell that to a businessman in the city, he'll be thinking, literally. The more you give, the more you get back. It's uh, quite easily seen with love. There's no, no difficulty at all. The more love you give, the more you get. The more you have in here. Whether somebody else loves you is not the point. But the point is, the more of love you give out, the more you have in you. Well, it happens to be a law of nature and works with everything. But, should you want to be generous in order to get the same things back, it doesn't work. <laughs> That's our usual way of being in the world. 
Now, giving means being concerned with the well-being of others. The main thing we have to give at one stage or another, we have to give ourselves totally and completely. If we want to experience any past moment, and we have to actually give ourselves also to the meditation. As long as we don't, we keep thinking. So giving oneself and giving whatever it is that oneself seems to be or to have <coughs> is an excellent practice, an excellent practice for the whole spiritual path. That's why it's considered to be such an important aspect. In fact, in Sri Lanka, we usually, the three words, dana, sila, bhavana, are used, and not sila, samadhi, and panya, and dana is the Pali word for general, D-A-N-A. English word, donor, simple, simple. So the second uh, precept, means practicing generosity. Now a person who wants to practice that is happy about every opportunity that presents itself and is grateful to anyone that makes makes it possible to be generous. Eventually such a person finds opportunities everywhere, anywhere. In the beginning it's quite um, helpful to look for In the beginning, sometimes the mind says, yes, it's a good idea, I want to be generous. And then one is just on the verge of giving, whatever it may be, and the mind says, but I might still need that. <laughs> <laughs> just watch. It all changes. This is one of the lovely things about the whole thing, it's like everything changes all the time. The more one practices, the more the whole thing changes. You can see that generosity has immediate karmic results because if you give somebody a gift and that person isn't even grateful, also happens, but and doesn't even give any signs of um, enjoying the gift. If you just give for the sake of giving, it gives a sense of if you look for gratitude, you're looking for results, achievement symbol. If you look for the fact that whatever it is you're giving that person is something that they really need, achievement symbol. Most of the time doesn't work. But if you give for the sake of giving, it always works. Always a feeling of The Buddha said, there are three, well, he said, different rarities, but in one case, he said there are three rarities. One is the arriving of a Buddha, one is a person who does a kindness, 
and the ceremony is successful. So gratitude is not a very um, widespread commodity. That's practical. Can't wait for somebody else to be grateful. We can do it ourselves. The more we do it, the more it enters into <coughs> The third one is to refrain from sexual misconduct, which entails responsibility, trust, and um, it also entails kind of um, connection to people that we don't necessarily have a sexual relationship with, but who are possibly associates or friends and relations. And uh, we are steadfast in our connection with them and do not hurt them and wish them. There's always a question how far we can go with that. And uh, that everybody has to find out for themselves. The guideline the Buddha gave there is quite explicit that we need to take responsibility for all the people that we are connected with and try to do, be loyal to them. Loyalty. And if we can, that's fine. And have long time. So that would be our practice. Loyalty and long time. However, if we come into a situation where this is an uh, obvious difficulty and our mind becomes more and more negative, we might have to resort to leaving that situation, leaving those people, momentarily or for longer, not blaming them for creating an unfavorable situation, but recognizing the fact that we haven't matured enough to deal with it. Which is fine. And then maybe we go back to the same situation when we think we've matured enough if the situation can be corrected. So no blame to anyone, it's just a lack of maturity. Which is the last resort. The first resort is loyalty and non The fourth one is not to lie not to uh, use the uh, harsh language, uh, no well gossip, gossiping, setting one person against another. And uh, naturally, the opposite of that is right speech. And we have talked about speech, and there was a question about it, and uh, we talked about it, that we need to have loving kindness for the other person when you want to tell them something that could be helpful to them. A speech is a direct regard of our thoughts. And I have mentioned that many times before, but I will mention it again, that I met a woman here in Australia who was teaching communication, which in itself is already a sign of our times. We need to be taught to communicate. We can't do it on our own. Um, and she was telling me that it has been statistically ascertained 
that our words are only 7% of the whole of our communication. Very interesting, I find. 93% are body language, tone of voice, the feeling that comes from the person, the emanation, the facial expression, all the things that make up a person. And uh, they have far more impact than the bare words. So we may be using the right kind of words, but the wrong kind of thoughts. It's still wrong speech. It doesn't come out right. It comes out in a way that the other person might feel objecting, objection to, might feel it by. We can say the same words and it comes out entirely different. We could yell at somebody and say to that person, you're an idiot, and we might have made an enemy. And we can say to another person, I'm an idiot. And they know very well that we're trying to tell them that what they did wasn't helpful and that we know something better to do. It's a tone and what's behind it that comes. Important for right speech. Last one, not to use alcohol and drugs, because they confuse the mind more than, than it's already confused. And the opposite of that is mindfulness. I don't think we have to discuss that any further. I think by now we have uh, talked about mindfulness. Now these points are the basics for a life, a human life, without regret, uh, without a feeling of bad, having a bad conscience, a feeling at ease about oneself, and because one feels at ease about oneself, one can meditate. If one regrets what one has just said to somebody, the mind's going to be busy with that instead of meditating. And that happens. We probably have to explain that. So, this kind of um, uh, injunction the uh, not killing is against hate and uh, not taking is against greed for sexual misconduct is against both hate and greed and uh, no wrong speech is against hate and no drugs or alcohol is against greed taking drugs or alcohol is um, a dead end um, escape me- mechanism to get out of it. Doesn't work, but it's um, based on it. These are the main and basic uh, ways of trying to get at that which we all carry with Now, taking refuge is another thing and very important. Taking refuge means to find a shelter. And it means to find something that's secure in this world. People look for all sorts of security. They look for security in another person, which is so absurd we don't even need to discuss it. Because the other person is just as insecure as oneself. 
They look for security in possession. The biggest buildings in most cities are the insurance companies. People look for security in insurance. Look for security in a government job and can't get thrown out. That type of thing. That's where people look for security. And do they feel secure? Feel just as insecure as everybody else who hasn't got that. We look for security in ways and means which are provided by the world and can just as easily fall apart as they have been provided for. I mean, insurance companies go past and uh, other people disappear. So, what the world provides, it can just as easily take away. There's no difficult job. In fact, it's equally distributed. But to find something which is secure under shelter, which is really unchangeable, cannot walk away, cannot go bankrupt, and has the highest ideal at heart, that's what it means to take refuge. And has the highest ideal, the highest what a person can reach, namely the enlightened mind, which is a mind that is totally pure. Now as we take refuge, we take refuge in Buddha Dhamma Samadha. First one, the Buddha is not the historical person, nor is it a statue, but it's the enlightenment principle which exists in all of us, and which the Buddha manifested to perfection, and which has entered into cosmic consciousness. All enlightenment minds are no longer personally available, but cosmic consciousness contains it. If we are through bodhisattvas, we can touch upon that which is enlightened in cosmic consciousness as a support system. No imaginations, just hard work. Taking refuge in the enlightenment principle means that we understand what the highest ideal for a human being is and that it is possible for us to manifest it as soon as we let go of the idea that it's me, that it's just an enlightenment principle, nothing else. And it also helps us to commit ourselves to that password. Taking refuge is not just words, it's a commitment. Their commitment which we may experience as gratitude, as certainty, as an inner urge to follow the path to its end, any one of these all, 
taking refuge in the Dhamma means that we realize that the Dhamma, the law of nature, as explained and uh, transmitted by the Buddha, is the highest truth. The highest truth, where nobody has a monopoly, that's a mistaken view that anyone has a monopoly on it. The highest truth exists, and in this language that we're using, we're calling it Dhamma. And again, we can feel protected, sheltered by it, knowing that there's something that's totally without green light. When Dhamma is actually internalized, no green light, just Dhamma. So knowing that, again, there's no commitment, joy to follow it. And Sangha, which I have already mentioned once, but will mention again, are in this connection those that became enlightened following the Buddha's path and have transmitted the guidelines and methods to us so that they are still available for us. And for that, we have enormous gratitude. The gratitude that we can have for that should be so encompassing and should be so totally within us that we don't have to re-arouse it again and again. It should be a feeling that is always at or within our awareness. Of course we will only have that if we realize what the absolute truth of Dhamma entails. And we will only have that if we realize what is what the enlightenment principle entails. Maybe, or quite surely, none of that means that we can manifest that ourselves at this moment. But having a view, a vision, a path, Without that, nothing happens at all. That's why for most people nothing happens. They may actually believe what the Dhamma says. Why not? And what happens? Nothing. Belief not enough. One has to commit oneself to do it oneself. And so, with taking refuge, we do all those things and we have a feeling of protection. The Buddha said the Dhamma protects the Dhamma practitioner. It has to, because it's goodness and goodness protects us. What we'll do in order to take refuge in precepts, and again, only who wants to. He said, I will chant it in Pali and ask you to repeat it in English after me.
If you haven't done it before, you don't need to learn Pani at this late stage of the course. <laughs> And we hold the hands in what is called Anjali, which is like this, which is not only the greeting in Buddhist countries, but also in Hindu countries, but is also a manifestation of what I'm saying comes from my heart. It's quite an interesting uh, practice because now, for instance, in the English-speaking countries, nobody does anything. They just say, hi. In Germany, we shake hands. And the practice for that has come about to show that we don't carry a weapon in our right hand. Thank you. can shake hands. And this has come about to show that what I'm saying is coming from my heart. So it's a very nice gesture. And uh, it's not um, a sometimes thought, but a uh, gesture of respect. It is a gesture of connection. <coughs> we connect to that, what's going on and what's happening and what we're saying. When we finish with taking refuge in precepts, um, what we traditionally do is we bow down three times to the statue on hand. Once for Buddha, once for Dhamma, once for Sangha. And the bowing down is a physical manifestation of our commitment. It's a physical manifestation our gratitude and it's a physical manifestation of showing that there's something much greater than we are. In the Asian countries this is a matter of course, people never think about it twice, they just do it, 